Hi, I'm here with uh, Dennis Lopez, Chairman and CEO of Quadrio, a Canadian pension fund investor. Uh, good to have you, Dennis. Welcome on board. Well, thank you, guys. It's great to be here. For those in the audience who don't know who you are, which I don't think there will be too many, why don't you give us a quick uh, update on what does Quadrennial do and scale, scope and scale of the company? Sure. Uh, Quadrennial was um, is is owned by the province of British Columbia's pension fund BCI. It was uh, approved to be formed in 2016. Uh, we then started collecting our assets back from our asset managers in 17. Completed that effort uh, in May of 18. Uh, at that time, we had about 24 billion of assets, and the mandate was to grow an international business and, and build a big operating company. So uh, today, uh, or as of year end or first quarter, uh, the assets are now up to 42 billion. Uh, so what's happened in that time period? Uh, we went on a massive hiring spree, uh, hired about 600 people off the street, took 600 people in from the asset managers who were working on the projects before. Uh, we built a big operating company in Canada. We've got 172 people in development, a $12 billion development pipeline. And you know we're taking on um, primarily um, multifamily projects, but we've got a few big ones too. Uh, for example, we've got a mall here in Vancouver that uh, we're putting $5.7 billion into and creating effectively the second city center of Vancouver. Um, the last thing we did is um, in Canada, we wanted to keep the assets, which we got them around 20 billion, at 20 billion. So um, we've created a vehicle with RBC, where once the properties become core, we can flip them into that entity. Outside of Canada, we opened up offices in Hong Kong, London, New York. Uh, we do programmatic investing with um, uh, partners and sectors that we like, and we've increased the portfolio from initial 4 billion to 16 billion. Wow. And, Lastly, and, we took on the mortgage business uh, last year. It's about $6 billion in lens in Canada and the U.S. What has COVID-19 done to uh, your investment program and, and to your growth? Well, um, like everybody, we've learned how to work from home. And that's been worked out you know, amazingly well. I've, I've been really uh, very proud to be part of a team that it's been um, pretty much seamless. Uh, so, but we nevertheless have had to get used to that. Um, really, it's had the biggest impact on probably the obvious thing, which is collecting rents. So um, generally, our retail portfolio is kind of did 35% in April collections. It's up to 40 uh, here in May. And then um, office has been surprisingly good. I think it's because primarily we have CBD offices kind of in the high 90s. Um, multifamily's been kind of in the low 90s, and then um, industrial, because we have properties that have some small business in, in them, it's been probably in the high 80s. Yeah. So that's, that's been the biggest impact. So obviously income is, is impacted occupancy, I'm sure, along with that may or may not start moving around. But with respect to your uh, uh, offensive strategies, growth, investment, uh, et cetera, what, what, has, uh, what have you been able to do and where? Um, our, our view on the first um, opportunity was really in the public markets. So we've uh, actually uh, acquired an interest in a global securities fund manager or securities manager, and um, we'll be we'll been in the process of allocating about uh, half a billion dollars into the public markets on a global.
basis. So we think that's probably the first opportunity. Uh, the second opportunity we've been seeing are more structured finance deals, you know, taking mezzanine pieces, kind of different pieces of collateral, uh, things like that, looking at uh, tranches of debt securities um, that um, have um, really been trading at big discounts. So that's kind of what we're looking at now. And then we are starting conversations with uh, platforms that um, may have issues right now. They're getting deferrals on rent or, or deferrals on interest payments. So uh, things haven't really bit yet, but we're starting those discussions, but it's still early days for that. You know, some of the proposals that have come in are really looking for pre-COVID pricing to bail them out of post-COVID problems. And that doesn't really work. So we'll talk uh, it'll be a while for that. Well, we'll talk in a bit about uh, what do you expect uh, values to settle at. But let's go back to um, these uh, ideas, uh, investment programs that you have been able to, to do, getting involved with the public markets, getting involved with the structured finance. Were those businesses and sectors that you were active before COVID, or was it just a quick reaction to an opportunity in a window that ended up being quite short, actually, and being able to move quickly? Yeah, for the public markets, it's something that we've always had in the back of our mind. Uh, the firm I came from previously, OXA, as their CIO, I used to oversee, in addition to the private equity and private debt portfolio, about a $6 billion global REIT asset portfolio and a global uh, listed uh, REIT bond portfolio. So we had the same idea in starting up Quadrill. In fact, in saying Quadrill, we were thinking the four quadrants of real estate. That's why we named it Quadrill. So really, this is fulfilling um, something that we wanted to do, but, but then I must say it was opportunistic. So there had been a group that we'd been talking to for probably about nine months before uh, the crisis. And you know, we, we thought it was interesting, but then when the crisis came and we saw you know, what's happening in the stock market with real estate stocks, we thought, wow, this is it. So we did probably, well, we moved within um, about three weeks to get to a point where we could deploy the first half billion, uh, first 500 million in the market, and um, and then also to finalize discussions, pretty much on a term sheet, which you've now finalized for acquisition of a shareholder interest in the company. So is your plan now to hold on to those shares at this, at this basis, or was that a trading strategy? Get in, make money, get out? Uh, the investment into the operating company is a long-term investment. We hope to grow that company uh, and help them uh, grow their AUM. The investment in the portfolios, we'll see. Yeah, I think um, I think longer term will continue. Now that we have the vehicle, uh, we'll continue to operate in the public sector. You know, the things that we can do there that we just don't want to do privately. So, for example, we're not really big fans of the emerging markets. We don't want to invest in the emerging markets because it's easy to get in and hard to get out. But, you know, we can buy public securities and we can do that. So if we see, for example, I don't know, you know, India or something like that, it's, it's got great opportunities. We would do it in the public sector, not the private. The other thing, too, is property types. We're not big fans of hotel. But, you know, I mean, at some point, you know, in the public sector, the pricing's gotten pretty, pretty, pretty bad. Um, the markets will get overdone. So... I think going forward, uh, well, right now we're taking advantage of what we think the opportunity the market's given us. Going forward, we use it for short-term plays on parts of the market we don't want to do privately. Since the first $500 million investment that you made, have you continued to put money in the market or are you uh, at the moment on hold? 
Well, right now we're kind of stepping it in. Uh, you know, we, we don't quite get the, um, you know, the, the broader stock or the, the S&P 500, as we know, is, is right now trading at maybe 11% discount. The read index is closer to 30. So the overall euphoria in the market right now isn't quite what we think or we would have expected. So we're stepping in. So we're just, we're going to continue to step in, Gotti. And um, uh, we're not going to put any big chunk in at a time. So we're kind of stepping in. We've been, we have been stepping in and we'll continue to step in. So you, you see the public markets being a, uh, a significant portion of your overall investment strategy in real estate. So this is your foray into it. Yeah, well, just well, right now, it's for what we're doing right now on the margin. I mean, you know, if we put a billion into it, that's a billion out of a 36 billion portfolio. So only 3%. Right, right. right. So, so it's really, it's just a, it's another thing, another way to, to make money. Like I said, in the four quadrants, um, we really like the idea of being able to play whatever portion of the market we feel, um, uh, you know, provides opportunities uh, that, you know, are, are out of proportion to the risk. I'm curious about uh, how do you, what do you, what do you read? Who do you talk to? What do you watch to uh, form the opinions and come up with the strategies that you're coming up with? Well, we have a great research group. We have, uh, you know, seven great researchers and they're constantly um, chasing around on little projects I send them on and my, my, uh, uh, you know, kind of half thought out ideas and then they actually turn, come back with the facts. So they're very helpful. But I mean, in terms of more public media, you know, Bloomberg all the time, Wall Street Journal, the normal ones, um, The Economist, I've read cover to cover since I was, you know, my mid twenties. Um, Axios, which is something that probably not as many people know is, is become a favorite. I look at that all the time. Yeah. Um, um, and, um, and then, and then too, frankly, um, you know, I just Google stuff. I mean, I just kind of, I'm interested in something, I Google it, and then it kind of winds you down that little rabbit hole that, you know, you know an hour later you realize that, you know, um, that you've just been looking at different articles on the topic you're trying to understand. Right. So looking back over the last 60 days, since the beginning of, uh, of the pandemic, um, what have you missed? What opportunities or what situations did you just misjudge or didn't quite anticipate that uh, you said, if I had to do over again, I might do something different? Well, um, and this goes to culture. So I'm an American, but I work at a firm full of Canadians. It's a Canadian firm. So, um, so uh, they had experienced SARS and it didn't go well. Uh, so whereas I, as an American, I didn't even... You know, I knew about it, but I read about it in the papers. So I would say the first, the early on, they were like, okay, we got to get ready. We got to do this. We got to tell people to um, start working at home. And I'm kind of like going, well, people have individual rights. You can't be telling that to people. Uh, anyway, two weeks later, I figured out they were right. I was wrong. Uh, so, um, so, uh, so, so I would say I was, I was not as quick as they were to recognize the impact and breadth of this. The good news is that uh, they uh, they were right. They did it anyway. They went ahead and moved everything ahead. So um, so what I uh, was slow to pick up, they picked up ahead of me. Yeah. So world events like this are rare, but not completely um, absent absent from history. And perhaps you can't say 9/11 is the same as this, and you can't say GFC is the same as this. 
but there are some elements of every time we have a major crisis in America, at least, and I suppose around the world, conversations are things will never be the same again. And uh, history tells us that actually, if you look two, three, four years later and look back on what happened and whether uh, the, the new normal is vastly different than the old normal, it, it's closer to the old normal than not. Do you think that looking five years out, three years out, the new normal will be more, more or less what it was like back in January and February of this year? Or do you really think this time it's different and the world will be very different? Yeah, well, uh, I, I love sayings, and one of my favorite ones is Mark Twain, is, is that um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Right. Um, and that's kind of what I think, too. You know, I, So uh, we're very much, in fact, we just literally had a session with our management board yesterday saying, okay, let's not overreact to what's going to happen until we have a vaccine. Uh, so from now until when they have a vaccine and it gets general distribution, uh, we're muddling through, okay? But it's not long-term strategy. What we're really thinking about is the question you've asked is what do things look like after you get the vaccine, it's distributed, and people will kind of go back to normal life. Um, I mean, taking them by sectors, I mean, yeah, I think retail has changed, right? I mean, it, it, you know, the department stores are gone. Um, you know, omni-channel is critical. Um, the, the positive thing on that, and I was talking to our head of retail yesterday, he's saying that the amount of space that online retailers are going to be looking for could be three or four hundred times, three or four percent, I should say, what, what they might be. And I think everybody's coming to the realization that you know, while we need less re physical retail, it's not going away. And what you really need is to work between online and physical retail. But absolutely, we just don't need as much as we've got here in North America, the UK, probably Australia too. Uh, office, you know, the use is going to change. Everybody, I think, is maybe over-extrapolating um, work from home. Yeah, it's worked for most people much better than anticipated. But... Um, I think what it's highlighted to, to me and to us is that if you really want to get a lot of stuff done, stay home, look at your PC for eight to 10 hours. Nobody will interrupt you. Nobody will bug you unless you have young kids or a dog. And, um, and you probably get a lot more done than if you go in the office and people are constantly stopping by and asking you questions. The reason you go to the office is, yeah, you want to get some work done, but you really want to collaborate with your colleagues. You have different views. You want to try and discuss it, reach conclusions. Uh, you want to try and learn. You want the, the random occurrences that you just wouldn't bump into the person. And that's really why you go to the office. You also, in, in firms that are, believe in culture, and we're a firm that believes in a strong culture, you need to build trust. You need to build relationships. And that doesn't happen uh, in videos. I mean, it helps. But the reason things have worked so well for most companies, worked so well for us, is that we had a really... Uh, established um, network of trust amongst everybody. So it worked. We have had, uh, we've hired a few people in this crisis and they don't know anybody and they've struggled a bit. Oh. So, um, so what does that mean for us? It means absolutely demand for office will be down. Use of office will be different. And maybe we'll start thinking about why we go to the office, which is as much social as it is work. Right. I, I happen to agree, and we're contemplating how we're going to come back to work. <laughs> right now, everybody's working from home. And uh, we're toying with the idea of, you remember in college, the office hours for the professor? 
we're, we're thinking about doing office days uh, so that most, if not all the people are there, let's say Monday, right? It's your uh, staff meetings, it's your team meetings day. Uh, and then for the rest of the week or a portion of the rest of the week, maybe it's more flexible. We haven't decided, but we'll see. The question though, as a real estate investor, Dennis, is, you know, as an operator, as a company, we have to make these decisions, but you're an investor. You own a lot of real estate, a lot of office. You will own even more probably in the future. And, uh, you know, for the last 15 years, owning a mall meant that you get the pleasure of investing 500 million to a billion dollars to try to keep up with the changing trends, only to realize that as soon as you are completed with the project, you got to start all over again. And now maybe it's going away altogether, at least uh, the department store aspect of it. So is an office, is, is, are the economics of owning and operating office real estate, uh, given your outlook or given the uncertainty about that outlook, substantially changing your point of view about wanting to own real estate and at what price? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really making us question buying older property. Uh, I think probably the market's underestimating the CapEx required to bring it up to, um, uh, to the standards required. Uh, so, uh, so we'll be slow probably to go into older office. I think for well-placed new office in, uh, we would be, you know, we're probably more open with the right locations and cities and tenants. Um, so, so I think we'll be, we'll be careful in office. We have historically been careful in office. Um, and I mean, it's interesting. I think the pricing of retail has almost gotten so bad now that you can probably make the numbers work on most things. And we've also been a big believer in densification of retail. Pretty much, you know, we've only got five malls here in, in Canada and each one of them is in some step phase of densification, primarily around residential. So we've been doing that for a while and we think there'll be more opportunities. And we think, especially on the B malls now, the prices are probably getting in the right zone. Office, the prices may take a little bit longer to get in the zone that's required to, uh, to do on the older property what's necessary for the standards going forward people will want. Yeah, I, I do have a little worry about where will the supply demand settle down in the office sector with respect to the effective rates when it's all said and done. When you take all these conflicting factors into account, what can a company really pay for the space of leases and how much space do they really want? And then what does it cost to run that business but because right. of uh, some new costs? So I just see a lot of, at the moment, a lot of dark clouds on the horizon and a lot of uncertainty on that. So uh, let's, talk about, let's talk about apartments. Uh, yeah. You're a big believer in multifamily rentals. Um, what's your view of that market? How does that settle? What changes in, in two, three years uh, in, in the multifamily rental landscape? Well, look, yeah, we are big believers. It's one of our key theses and globally as well. So um, we're big owners up here in Canada, uh, and, um, and we're big owners in the U.S., and we've put a lot of money into both the PRS projects in the U.K., and we just started up a big joint venture with Heinz to build um, multifamily in the continent. Um, uh, what I would say is we're probably most concerned about in the U.S. Uh, up here, and we're most concerned with government regulation. Unlike most of the time where you're concerned with supply and demand, um, demand we, is, is, we think it would be steady. Uh, there's been a huge affordability issue that's just now gotten worse. COVID's made it worse. So the thesis that we have behind multifamily of affordability uh, hasn't changed. Uh, in fact, it's gotten better. But 
The problem now is that the governments are stepping in and putting in regulation and rent control. So um, here in Canada, we've had to live with it uh, for a while. We've gotten used to it. The governments have uh, structured it in such a way that it still makes economic sense. It does have a hard time competing with condo, but, um, but it has a niche. Uh, in the States, we'll just have to see how it plays out. Uh, I think probably just a very initial reaction is that it's going to bias our investment towards states where we feel the regulation in the future is less likely. But it's complex. Um, you know, like many of these things, this is a trend that's been in place for a while. We've been studying it for quite a while. It's just going to be exacerbated by COVID-19. In Europe, um, once again, rent control has been in place for a while. I mean, you know what happens with rent control is just that nothing's built and it gets worse and worse and worse. So actually in places like, let's say, Amsterdam, that's had it in place for 10 years, they've kind of done the opposite now. They realize that they have to loosen things up and that's presenting opportunities. So, you know, everybody knows the story on rent control. Uh, it's an easy thing to do initially. Uh, and over time, the properties uh, generate. Over time, nothing's built. Over time, people realize they have to loosen up the regulations and people start building again. Unfortunately, I think in many states in the U.S., we're at the beginning of that cycle. Yeah, it, it does come and go in cycles, though. And uh, 10 or 15 year cycles, it seems like where there's some very onerous regulation that goes into effect to control rents. 10 years later, there's a housing shortage in those markets. Uh, for five years, they try to figure a way out of it. Then they decide to do some lifting, usually by... Uh, exempting new assets from uh, rent control for at least a period of time. Those assets 20, 15, 20 years later become subject to a then new wave of regulation. So it's a timing game. But I think you're probably right that in America, particularly in uh, uh, major markets like LA, New York, San Francisco, we're probably at the beginning of the 10 bad years, not the, the end of them, if you will. Bad only in terms of development, probably good for the people who live in those towns and need the relief from from housing cost uh, growth. So right. the, the market can solve a lot, maybe everything, but it's not gonna be allowed to, to do it all on its own, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> so so um, we, we spoke about uh, retail, multifamily, we spoke about office. I'm curious about what's your take on industrial. Okay, well, I mean, obviously that's an easy one. It's the winner, right? Um, that along with data centers. Um, so, um, so look, you know, we had, uh, our conviction on multifamily is squared on industrial. So we have big industrial portfolios here in Canada, U.S., Mexico, U.K., continent, um, and China, India. So, um, so we, we like that play, and we like it more now. Um, we'll probably we'll keep going. Um, you know, what's, what's going to be different? Um, I think uh, the, the rental uh, rates now are maybe um, going to support more um, multi-story industrial, which isn't uncommon outside the United States and parts of the world, but is rather uncommon in the U.S., so we'll probably be seeing more of that. Um, but, you know, there'll be some, maybe you have to rethink a little bit with the change in global supply, uh, you know, lines, but not too much. Um, so it's been a sector that we've just loved for a long time, we just love it more. So I agree with that, and I've loved
I think for a long time as well. Uh, and logistics, modern logistics particularly, is one area probably outperforming almost anything else in that overall category. Uh, the, on the other end of the spectrum, you have uh, multi-tenant uh, local serving industrial space where it's, you know, it's quasi-retail, quasi-office, quasi-industrial, quasi-warehousing, but small multi-tenant type of things. And those that don't perform the same way, they don't even respond to the same market trends necessarily. In the industrial logistics space, particularly, over the last five years, sort of an unsung story is that the development economics have gotten squeezed a lot. Uh, the, the big tenant have gotten much smarter about real estate, uh, and they have decided that, that they've been creating way too much value for people like you and I, and that they're going to um, squeeze us on uh, the rent. So the, the, it is a great space when you think about occupancies and rent and rent growth, but it is more challenging from a development economics point of view. So do you have any concern about uh, the viability of the, the feasibility of developing all this 10 billion square feet of industrial logistics space that is now being expected to be needed for the next five years. Yeah, look, you're getting squeezed, but I guess it also depends on your view of your cost of capital, right? So I think we're definitely of the view that it's lower for longer. And I think as I mentioned to you back when we were at the PREA conference, maybe forever, you know, so, right. uh, so we just don't see the cost of debt going up for a long time. I mean, we, um, we went out and got ourselves rated. We got rated double A low. Uh, we'll be issuing some bonds next week, way under 2%, uh, fixed medium term. We put together a commercial paper program. We're borrowing. We rolled over about 150 million yesterday at 38 basis points. That's amazing. So, so, so yes, you we are all going to get squeezed on logistics on the, um, on the revenue side. And frankly, we're also playing very hard on the liability side to reduce our cost of capital because really what matters is the spread, right? Right. So we have a, another aspect which relates to not just logistics, but definitely is uh, prevalent there, the, the duration. Uh, you know, these are big, expensive buildings to build. The tenants come in, put a lot more improvements in them. So the prevailing thinking is that it's a 15-year lease, and this tenant isn't going anywhere at the end of the 15 years because of how much they have invested in the building. But that's not necessarily uh, something we should depend upon, right? Because for most of those players, even though it sounds like a lot of money to us to invest $100 or $150 a square foot in robotics and other things, uh, for them, it's a rounding error, and they have amortized it over the first five years of the lease. And then 15 years later, when the lease does come up, they probably think they have a lot more flexibility than we would like for them to have. So as you invest in these assets, which I believe you do for a, a long hold, you don't do it as a trading strategy, it's a hold strategy. Are you, are you experiencing any anxiety about what happens at the end of the 15 year lease? Are you making uh, uh, accommodations in terms of how you treat the assets and their amortization on your balance sheet so that if the tenant does leave at the end of 15 years, you're not um, caught by surprise? Yeah, it's a good question. We've um, uh, had a lot of um, discussion, a lot of analysis uh, on this for, for quite a while now, frankly. And uh, look, I think we're coming to the view that that's the future. 
So right now you look at these things and you go, oh, they're anomalies, who would want them? Um, but I think, um, you know, as we've seen uh, e-commerce get bigger and bigger uh, and, um, and the need for distribution facilities to support it grow, uh, and now, like I said, maybe, you know, multi-story getting much more common in North America. Uh, and also, too, nimbyism in markets where people just don't want the stuff built. Um, you know, we're coming to the view that this is more the future than the past. So, look, you know, it, it takes conviction. And, you know, we've done a lot of work. Um, and, you know, we could be wrong. But... Um, but we certainly got much more comfortable, I'd say, in the last 18 to 24 months than we, than we were back then. Yeah. Dennis, what are some of the tough questions your board is asking you these days? Things that you uh, wish you had more conviction around what the answer really is? Hey, you know, we, we've got a great board. They, uh, they really help. Um, and um, I mean, these guys, the people, uh, have been doing this for a long time. Uh, you know, their initial focus was correctly on the people. So they really wanted to know about our staff, how people were doing, morale, how it was going working from home. Uh, you know, 1,200 people is a lot of people to, um, to have dispersed um, across the world, frankly. Um, and, uh, and that was, um, you know, we spent a lot of time working on that and trying to sort out how we would react to this pandemic, which, um, as I said, Many of my Canadian colleagues had experience with, I didn't. Um, and then after that, it was the portfolio. Uh, and the obvious ones, retail in particular, we're fortunate only about 7% of our portfolios are retail. So it's a problem. It's, you know, it's like cuts and bruises, but there's no um, major, uh, nothing that you know, is going to really cause a huge problem. So we focused on that. Uh, we focused on our mortgage portfolio, too. Um, you know, this is kind of when, um, you know, you kind of find out where the issues and problems are. So we've been through an extensive review of that portfolio. Um, and, and, and that was, those are the major things. There was probably one other one too. We have a student, we're big in student housing in both the U.S. and Australia and New Zealand. I uh, got a little bit of help in New Zealand and that we had entered into long-term leases with the university. So it was kind of a non-factor. And in the U.S., I must admit, I've been shocked myself at, you know, the rents that we're collecting are, you know, in the high 90s, which just is really surprising to me. Uh, and we're, in terms of pre-leasing for next fall, we're kind of on schedule to what we have done in previous years. Of course, if the universities don't open, then those, um, uh, those uh, reservations will fall away. So uh, those have been our problem areas, and that's been what the board's focused on. And and they're asking the right questions. So, you know, we, we scramble, get the work done, and, um, and, you know, it's been good. So, I mean, you know, a lot of hard work, though, to get the answers in. Good. Well, it sounds like uh, you've got a smart board asking you the right questions, and you're making you think. That's what you want as a CEO, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Take <laughs> all the help I can get. <laughs> well, I, I, it's good. <laughs> I'd love for you to be helping me. So um, when you consider those questions and the experiences that you are uh, going through now as a business, both external and internal, what changes are you already anticipating you're going to be making in your business, both how you operate 
what you invest in, and how do you ex execute that investment program. Okay, well, maybe let's start in how we operate. I, um, the biggest changes will be in retail. I'm uh, not sure we need the deep spaces anymore, so how do you deal with that? Um, need to attract the, the um, online retailers and need to spend more time building relationships with them. You know, we all have a lot of experience now with the department stores, but, you know, be dealing with the space they'll be taking and then just shrinking things down. So uh, that's how we'll be changing those operations. And then we'll be looking for opportunities where we can replicate what we've already been doing up here in Canada, outside of Canada. Uh, industrial, I think it's, it's, it's kind of just more of the same with some of the issues we talked about in terms of densification. Multifamily, it's, um, uh, it's probably more software. We've put in some software where we're communicating directly with our tenants. Uh, they, you know, type in what they want. Um, everything's being done virtual. So I think the digitization of the properties is going to be huge. Um, we're now, you know, working on programs. We've been putting sensors all over our building, detecting not only uh, operations of performance, but flows of people. You know, being able to deal with all that information and sort it into something that can be um, understood and decisions can be made from it is really critical. So I think that, and that'll be in, certainly probably first in office, uh, but we're absolutely gonna see it in the malls too. Um, and, um, uh, you know, and then in terms of what we're investing in, I think, you know, we'll, we'll go slow in retail and office, but look for opportunities. We'll go fast in, um, in industrial and data centers and in uh, multifamily, we'll go fast where we think regulations will be uh, uh, lighter um, and then I think early stages too will probably not be going as much into the equity more structured things like mezzanine or preferred stuff like that with a little bit of protection and then as we get a clearer view as to when things will kind of um, resume then we'll take stronger positions on the equity side and one other thing too I think there'll be some opportunities in operating companies which you know we very much like to uh, invest in in our in the sectors we like I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because i was going to go to that next uh, i know you've been buying interest in operating companies uh it'll be great to hear a bit more like what is the motivation what has been the reason how did you make the decision to get in that business how is it going so far and uh how do you view that is that a driver for just a vehicle to, so you can put more money out in that sector or are there other reasons why you're investing in operating companies well, remember, we're one of the biggest real estate operating companies in Canada, so we do this. We've got 1,100 people here, uh, you know, and from property management through development. So it, for us, it doesn't feel like it's something um, different. Uh, in fact, when we do our due diligence, we send our finance teams and our account, property accounting teams down, you know, uh, and just say, hey, how do they compare to how we do things? And sometimes we learn and sometimes we realize that um, we're actually doing okay. Um, no, we like being in the business. Uh, we like being in the business primarily first for knowledge. Uh, we like being closer to the action. We like being involved in all the decisions. The onus it puts on us, we gotta be fast. So, you know, we gotta move as quickly as they do. And we do that in our business up here in Canada. So we think we can do it down there and we have. So we've proven to some of our uh, partners that, you know, hey, yeah, you are just as nimble as you guys. Um, so you have to do that. Um, so being close to the action, I think, makes us have, we have better decisions. 
Um, you know, when times come like right now, it's easier to have higher convictions. If you've kind of been there and watching things and be involved in things, when time comes to go ahead and uh, make difficult decisions, I think it's easier that you really understand all the nuances, especially in distress situations. Uh, and then, you know, the way we view it too is, is that it generates product. I mean, we, you know, we don't buy stuff off um, the street. We build stuff, make stuff. We pick out what we want to do. We go find out who we want to do it with, and that's what we do. So um, it manufactures our investments for us. And I guess our view too is, is that, you know, that those, when we find good partners, when we can build a good equity relationship like that, we just stick with that. We'll never sell it. And it'll continue to, as long as we nurture it well and, and nurture the relationship well, it'll continue to be a great source of um, attractive product for us. Is your view that they should be completely captive, meaning that they should only deploy capital on behalf of Quadrio, or are they welcome to encourage to go raise capital from other sources? No, I think I think they can do both. Yeah, I think we're, you know, in fact, it almost, you know, like when I was at OXA, we were forced to do that. Best practices, we were funded by the insurance company, but over 50% of our capital was from third parties. Um, when I was there, I also oversaw the um, fundraising uh, part of the business, and we had 230 clients. And, um, you know, when you've got to service 230 clients around the world, plus your parent company who's giving you a big chunk of cash, you really ups your game, right? You know, you kind of get hit from what everybody around the world thinks is best practices. Uh, so, uh, so no, I think doing both is, is good discipline. Good for you, I agree. Last question on, on buying companies. What are the top three things that you look for that you think make a great uh, operating company you'd want to be a part of? Well, the first one's the people. It's always about the people, um, you know. I guess one of the reasons you buy an operating company is these are people that you can't hire, right? Uh, they, they don't want to work for anybody. They want to work for themselves. They're usually very, very good at something, either a market or a property type. They have a skill that is really unique that allows them to be very successful. So this is a way for us to get access, access to talent and people we can't hire. So that's always number one. Uh, number two is just that um, they're doing something we like, you know? So frankly, if, if they're not uh, focused on what we want to focus on, then it just doesn't really matter. And then three is that they're typically in markets that support what they're doing. So you can be the best at what you're doing, but if you're in a market that just has no prospects, it just doesn't matter. So those are the three things. Which parts of America you think are going to outperform other parts of America? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. And, um, you know, the, the answer of the American answer, and I can say this because I'm American, is always growth, growth, growth. But I did work for 10 years in Europe, and I learned that it's not just growth, it's also, too, the spread between your cost of capital and the growth. And growth can be low, but if you um, have a good spread, you can do just fine. And when you have markets that are growing, 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 you also have to look at supply, supply, supply. So, um, so, I don't know. I think to be honest with you, I'm rethinking that a bit right now. Um, and yes, there's the, you know, just the, the, you know, the, um, the Austins and Nashvilles and all that kind of stuff people like, but you know, the Midwest has kind of been overlooked for a long time. Maybe there's some opportunities there. So I think um, with this pandemic, uh, we're kind of throwing out all of our old views and kind of just re-looking at everything again and saying, well, where's there really value? 
Um, and you know, you don't have to have super growth. If you have no new supply, you have steady growth in rents and you've got a low cost of capital. But does blue red uh, play a factor in your uh, analysis? Well, you know, blue blue is the problem with rent control, right? Um, so um, so that's 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 a problem, you know. And red is typically uh, you know uh, more freer markets, open markets. So it, it's not. There's a lot of blue states uh, that um, are are thoughtful about business. So so not necessarily, but it's a leading indicator. <laughs> At least it's a factor, right? It's a leading indicator. It needs to be explored further. <laughs> Good. Well, this has been a great conversation. Uh, maybe a quasi-humorous question. Looking out uh, maybe three, six months, what do you think will have surprised us? What will catch people by surprise? I don't know. Maybe all these bullish people in the stock market will realize that there's more fundamental problems than they think. Um, is that what you think? You think that we're going to have a, a second uh, a stock market crash um, coming no, out? I don't think we'll have a crash. They throw in, the, the central banks have thrown too much money at it. And then, by the way, they've all done a great job. I mean, it's been unbelievable. They really learned in the GFC. And I mean, they were so quick. And it made such a huge difference, too. Good. Uh, so, um, so, no, I don't, I don't think it'll be a leg down. But I think it'll be maybe a very long swoosh. I don't know if these bees... I don't believe in a V or even a U. I think it's maybe a very long swoosh. Right. But um, uh, so, so that and, um, you know, you walk away from all these things, too. If you remember September 11th, what it did for security in, at airports um, just changed the world. We never would have imagined that. So, so I don't know. So I, it'll probably be something along the lines of health. You know, we, we've decided, you know, the term ESG, we've just started calling it ESGH now. And, um, <laughs> Great. And, uh, and you know, and, and, you know, there are going to be things that we didn't think about with health that um, we're going to have to take into consideration. I mean, simple things like materials on handrails and things like that. So, um, so yeah, it's going to change our world and we're going to be thinking about uh, health much more. I know many of us North Americans are always amazed at people from Asia that would be wearing masks around all the time. Couldn't quite figure that out. Now we get it. So, um, so, um, so I think we'll be surprised at how much more health becomes an everyday factor in our lives. Dennis, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. You're sharing your wisdom. Uh, Quadreal is lucky to have you at the helm. I'm sure your team feels the same way, and I know that I'm privileged to be your friend and your colleague. So thank you for sharing your views, and I look forward to seeing you soon. Stay healthy and stay safe. Hey, thanks, Scotty. It was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun as it always is. So look forward to seeing you again soon. You bet. See you okay, soon. Take care.